Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. As promised, today we have an interview with you going over the leak of the Roe v. Wade decision and also a look at what America will look like if Roe finally falls. And to have that discussion, I called on one of the smartest pro-life activists I know. Uh, Dr. Michael New is a research associate of political science and social research at the Catholic University of America. He's also an associate scholar at the Charlotte Lose Institute, and he's also a fellow at the Witherspoon Institute in Princeton, New Jersey. He has both a PhD in political science and a master's degree in stats from Stanford University and has served as a postdoctoral fellow at the Harvard MIT Data Center and a lecturer at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. His articles have appeared in various peer-reviewed journals, four of which have examined the impact of state-level abortion legislation. In the U.S., he's the premier expert on public opinion on abortion, on the impact of pro-life laws, and how the pro-life movement has responded to Roe over the past 40 or so years. Uh, We've had Dr. New on the show several times. He's not only an academic doing uh, lectures and and hobnobbing with the establishment. He's also somebody who's out every Saturday morning in front of an abortion clinic offering hope and help to the women who are going inside. And so I couldn't think of anybody better to give a snapshot of what America will look like after Roe and what the impact of this leak has been. So without further introduction, here's my conversation with Dr. New. Well, thanks so much for joining us again. I think this is your your third time on the show, and we really we really value your expertise. And so, to start off, I'd like to get your reaction to the political leak of what may be uh, the Roe v. Wade ruling. This is just unprecedented. I mean, uh, regardless of how I view the Supreme Court and how they've ruled in different cases, I always think that by and large the court has always conducted itself professionally. They don't leak decisions. They don't even leak when decisions are coming out. You know, of uh, all the branches of government, they are the least predictable. So uh, this leak is really unprecedented, and it really damages the credibility of the court. I mean, leaks are bad for a variety of reasons. It subjects judges to uh, all kinds of pressure that they shouldn't face, that they need to be able to communicate with each other in confidence. That makes it harder when there's leaks. So I really do hope that the leaker is found and punished appropriately. That said, you know, the draft opinion of Justice Alito was leaked. It does appear the Supreme Court is set to overturn Roe v. Wade. The senior caveats apply. It's just a draft. Sometimes, you know, opinions do change over time. But I do think it is a positive development. And I do think that a lot of the protests and a lot of the backlash are actually cementing that decision. I think the Supreme Court walked back now and decided not to overturn Roe v. Wade. That would look bad. That would look as if they're influenced by outside pressures. That's something they don't want. You know, they really want to be seen as an institution that uh, is kind of resistant to public pressure, that tries to make decisions based on the cases and the oral arguments presented. You know, I think that all the backlash and all the protests, all the demonstrations may actually have the effect of cementing this decision rather than weakening it. Which is interesting because, of course, there's been two potential scenarios for for why it was leaked laid out. There's the scenario A is 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 a leftist leaked the decision in order to provoke this backlash and make the justices think twice. And option B is that uh, a right winger released the decision in order to lock the five justices into that position for precisely the reason you just described. What do your instincts tell you happened? My instincts are probably the former. You know, I think that it was probably someone on the court, probably a clerk for one of the more quote unquote liberal justices. You know, sometimes angry people, frustrated people don't make 
good decisions. I think the fact it was leaked to a mainstream outlet like Politico does kind of makes it more likely than not it was someone from the left. That said, the other scenario is not totally implausible. I will say it is possible that there was a conservative clerk who was frustrated with the way the decision was going, or maybe somebody flipped, or maybe he saw somebody going wobbly and did this to basically try to cement a decision that you know he favored. So that second scenario is not completely implausible, but I am kind of more sympathetic to the idea that it was uh, one of the clerks of one of the more liberal justices that leaked this. Did you get a chance to read Alito's draft decision? I have not read the whole thing in its entirety, but I've read portions of it, and I like the way it's written. I mean, it's a very strong repudiation of Roe v. Wade. He calls it you know, egregiously wrong. I think that's a very powerful wording that I appreciate. It seems very thorough. I think it seems, you know, this draft that I have read parts of seems like a, a very good way to... Uh, to overturn Roe v. Wade if, if that's in fact what does happen. For the listeners who might not know the ins and outs of, of Roe v. Wade, why it was decided and what Lee Alito's reasoning, at least in this draft decision, was for overturning it, what was Alito's decision made up of? In other words, what were his legal reasons for overturning this, which I think is safe to say it would reflect the thinking of Clarence Thomas, certainly, and it appears three other justices as well. Simply put, the Constitution is by and large silent on the issue of abortion. You know, you can read it, reread it. You know, abortion never simply comes up. And by and large, when the court is silent upon something, you know, that's an issue kind of left to Congress and very often left up to uh, state legislators. And he also does some historical work showing that, you know, there were protections of pre-born children that, you know, were in place during the 1700s into the 1800s. You know, you can't really infer a, a legal right to an abortion on the grounds that it was something the founders, you know, intended, but just didn't specify due to the fact that there were limitations on abortion that, you know, were in fact in place, you know, in the 1700s and 1800s and into the 1900s. So, I mean, those are kind of the sorts of arguments that he's been making. Those are arguments that pro-lifers have made for a long time. Obviously, he goes into a, you know, a lot more detail than what I'm doing right now, but they're very solid arguments. Again, abortion, Roe v. Wade, you know, create a right to abortion out of something called a right to privacy in the Constitution. thing is that the right to privacy is nowhere spelled out in the Constitution. The right to privacy is kind of inferred in the previous decision, Griswold v. Connecticut, that dealt with contraceptives. So it's really been a very you know, shaky decision constitutionally. I would say the implications of this decision have always been unpopular. For all intents and purposes, Roe v. Wade legalized abortion on demand in all 50 states for all nine months of pregnancy. That's a policy position that a very small percentage of Americans support. Poll after poll shows that Americans support limitations on third trimester abortions, second trimester abortions. So for the past 49 plus years, you know, Roe has really been on a collision course with itself. And again, it appears that there's a good chance the Supreme Court will, in fact, go ahead and overturn Roe v. Wade. What's interesting is a lot of the articles now uh, that are coming out to debunk what's in this draft decision attempt to reassert a lot of the, the, the fundamental holdings of Roe in 1973. And what's interesting is, is that the vast majority of, of people are either unaware of the history of abortion in the U.S. or hold to an ideological interpretation of it that doesn't match up to the facts. I remember when I was in university, my American history professor claimed that abortion was the norm until it was made widely illegal following the 1860s when there was a campaign by, by doctors based on new evidence about when life began in the womb to protect said human beings. And, and Roe, if I'm not mistaken, derived a lot of its false history primarily from a book by Larry Later, who invented a lot of stuff specifically in order to sway the justices. And, and the justice who wrote the Roe decision actually relied on this book and its, its 
it's throughout the decision. He, he cites this book many, many times. To what extent do you think that uh, Alito's decision was a corrective to the, the false history that led to the Roe decision in the first place? Larry later, you know, was someone who was you know very much involved with National Abortion Rights Action League. He was very much involved with zero population growth. I mean, I think it, uh, the fact that the Supreme Court would view him as a you know, serious scholar with no skin in the game or no bias, I think is just baffling. But, you know, I think they made a lot of, you know, bad decisions at that time. You know, I think that relying on, you know, such an ideological source for their decision, I think really reflects poorly on them. You know, I think that Alito is, uh, you know, again, very thorough in the history that he does present, that he is correct that, you know, there was a physician's movement in the 1800s, you know, led by Horatio Storer, uh, to put protections of preborn children in place. And a lot of it was based, you know, on the fact that, you know, there was new evidence that, you know, life begins at conception. So I think that, you know, I tell some of my listeners that we're kind of in the second pro-life movement now. We've kind of already had one in the 1800s that dealt with kind of, you know, strengthening existing laws. You know, now we're kind of doing our best to uh, overturn Roe v. Wade and enact protections of preborn children whenever we can. Now, I want to double back to something that you said just a minute ago when you said the majority of Americans oppose Roe's fundamental holdings because you got groups like NPR and a number of other groups that are saying, you know, the majority of Americans want want Roe to be upheld. But the only reason that the majority of Americans responded that way is because they're unaware of, of where Roe enshrines protections for, for so-called abortion rights. And I know you've done a lot of research into the statistics. What is the general lay of the land with regards to the way Americans view abortion right now? One of the frustrating things I deal with as a writer and researcher on sanctity of life issues is these polls that keep coming up talking about how Roe v. Wade enjoys strong public support. And in the week after this decision was leaked, at least three news organizations released polls, which purportedly show that Roe v. Wade's popular. And all the polls suffer from the same flaws, two common flaws with all these polls. The first flaw is that they don't really explain that, again, Roe v. Wade effectively legalized abortion throughout all nine months of pregnancy in all 50 states. That's something that the polls don't make clear. And again, that's a policy position that is kind of shared by a relatively small percentage of Americans. The second flaw is they don't explain what happens when Roe is reversed. Many people think that if you overturn Roe v. Wade, abortion is banned. That's not the case. If Roe v. Wade's overturned, it goes back to the states, and then state legislatures can make their own decisions about abortion policy in their respective states. But the polls don't make that clear. So all these polls, which claim that 60, 70 percent of Americans support Roe v. Wade, don't really give us any real indication of what Americans think about abortion. What's more helpful are polls about specific policy issues. I mean, Gallup doesn't ask these questions as often as they should, you know, but they've been polling on, you know, second trimester abortion bans and third trimester abortion bans since the mid to late 1990s. You know, it's pretty clear that I think around over 80% of Americans think abortion should be like generally illegal after the third trimester. Over 60% of Americans think abortion should be generally illegal after the second trimester. A lot of the incremental things pro-lifers support pull well, including parental vomit laws, you know, limits on taxpayer funding of abortion, informed consent laws, and even conservative states, you know, places like Texas, Alabama, Mississippi, people, you know, pluralities, if not majorities, 
really do favor very strong protections for most, if not all, pre-born children. So, you know, Americans are a lot more pro-life than these polls give us credit for. One of the things I find interesting is that the Democrats constantly predict a massive backlash to, to Roe's overthrow. And one of one of the theories, of course, is that the reason this was leaked was somebody who wanted to give the, the Democrats a, a head start in, in recruiting people for the midterms. But what we saw after the confirmation of, of Kavanaugh and Barrett is it didn't seem like that actually produced this result for the Democrats. And, and one of the things that's also interesting is so this news gets leaked and you have the predictable response from, from pro-abortion Democrats. But then you've also got governors like Christy Nome, who comes out and says, if if this is real and Rose overturned, we'll call a special uh, legislative assembly to enshrine rights for preborn children. You have the governor of Iowa, uh, also a woman saying something very similar, which they wouldn't be doing if they if they felt like they were going to lose their jobs over it because they they are politicians. What do you I know you've done a lot of research into the data on, on Americans, public opinions, and we're seeing a lot of a lot of strong feelings about about this ruling. But if every single person in downtown Manhattan is furious, but, but you know, healthy majorities in, in the Midwest still still support the overthrow of Roe, then we're still going to see a proliferation of pro-life laws. So do you think the concentration of of radically pro-choice people versus very pro-life people means that we won't see the electoral map change all that much as a result of this? No, I really don't think that uh, it's going to be that big an issue in 2022, I mean, to be perfectly honest. You know, I think that inflation is going to be an issue, gas prices are going to be an issue, and it's possible there may be circumstantial races where uh, abortion you know, plays a pretty salient role. But the parties have polarized by and large, you know, in most red states, statewide officials, governors are pro-life. And in most blue states, you know, most statewide officials, governors support legal abortion. So you're going to see just more polarization. I mean, you see that happening in California. You see that happening in Maryland. You know, they've done things to make abortion policy more permissive. And I think in conservative states, you're going to see more protections of preborn children, you know, Again, Governor Noem in South Dakota has said that she called a special session to enact legislation that would protect pre-born children in her state. I think that you'd see similar things happening in, in other red states. So I just think the polarization will continue. I don't really see this causing a big backlash against pro-life candidates in this coming election cycle. I just think that it'll just probably lead to more, more polarization. When you say that most Americans don't understand what will happen when Roe is overturned, this is the really interesting question, because I think a lot of people are unclear about this. Now, Marjorie Denenfeld, sort of the Susan B. Anthony list, put it really well in a recent profile that just came out where she said, you know, if Roe Ro gets overturned, it's taken us, you know, almost 50 years to get to the beginning, she says, right, which is where the work of, of changing public opinion in certain states and passing laws will come into effect. So where will we be if, if Roe falls the next day? You know, what does what does the lay of the land look like for abortion in the United States? There's a couple of things that would happen. First off, there are some states that still have laws that predate Roe v. Wade. So I think roughly nine states never really repealed their own pre-Roe v. Wade ban on abortion. So in those nine states, preborn children would be protected. There's about another nine states that have what are known as trigger laws, that these are laws that were protecting preborn children that would come into effect once Roe v. Wade's overturned. And there's a handful of states where the, you know, it's a little more ambiguous what would happen. So I think you'd probably see the day after Roe v. Wade is reversed, if that does happen, you'd see at least the unborn children being protected in about 18 states. And I think that, you know, over time, you know, more red states would start to take proactive measures. And you'd probably see preborn children protected, you know, in roughly between 
you know, anywhere from 20 to 30 states. It's hard to say how some of the purplish states might kind of shake out on this. But I think you'd say at least 20 states need a pretty solid protections for preborn children in place should Roe v. Roe be overturned. Now, two things are true at the same time, right? For, for a long time, you've had Democrats portray abortion as something essential, even though the majority of abortions, as your research has illustrated, are for convenience. But you've also had a lot of Republicans declare that abortion is one of their fundamental issues, but use that largely as an issue of political convenience as well. Uh, Marjorie Dannenfelser's memoir actually puts this really well. She talks about how the pro-lifers were kind of like the black sheep of the conservative movement for a long time, right? You had politicians who would use the enthusiasm of the pro-life movement to drive voter turnout, but not offer them much. And so if Rose overturned, this is really where we'll have a revelatory moment for both sides. Do you think that GOP legislatures will respond to this opportunity the way Christy Noem indicated that she would? Or do you think we're going to see a lot of, uh, of Republicans now that are much less enthused about passing pro-life legislation now that they know that they will be implemented and they can, they'll have to live with the results of that legislation? You're going to see a lot of enthusiasm on Republicans. I think some might go wobbly. But I think that, you know, the generation Republicans were electing lately is just a lot better on this issue. In the past, you know, Republicans had it pretty easy. The sort of pro-life bills that would take effect were those things that were broadly supported. Limits on taxpayer funding of abortion, parental involvement laws. You know, those are easy votes. And the other votes were things that just we knew would get struck down. So essentially they could cast those votes as kind of free votes, knowing the law would never take effect. Now we can actually, you know, do things, you know, protect the pre-born children in a pretty substantive way. But I do think that this current generation of Republicans, you know, is in many cases a lot more up to the task. I mean, one important tea leaf is just the way they've handled judicial nominations. You know, they've been very serious about trying to get good people on the bench. You know, I think that when uh, President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court and Republicans were able to delay that nomination until Obama left office, I don't think that would have happened 20, 30 years ago. But I do think that you know Mitch McConnell and the current generation of Republican leadership really value conservative judges on the court a lot more than their predecessors did. The fact that you know they were able to get Amy Coney Barrett through in a relatively narrow window of time before the 2020 election, I'm not sure past generations of Republican congresses or senates would have done that. So I think the fact that they've really been very proactive about judicial nominations, I think really indicates that if given the opportunity, they will protect preborn children. Again, there may be some that go wobbly. I can't predict the future. But I think this is a Republican party that's a lot more serious about life issues than, say, Republicans in the past. I'm interested to know what you what your take as a longtime watcher of, of, of the pro-life movement and the pro-choice movement in America will be. So there's there's multiple different scenarios that people are talking about. One has already kind of started, which is you see a sort of a resorting where people are moving to areas where their values are more likely to be held and adopted by their governments. Right. You see people leaving California and leaving New York, for example, both states, which will probably have. Um, even more emphatic abortion regimes post row, uh, you know, more likely to offer free abortions to women traveling in from out of state and things like that. So there's there's the resorting aspect that will likely happen, but also just looking at the effect on the abortion rate, which is where a lot of your primary research is gone. So when you're looking at what a post row world can look uh, can look like, what do you see as being the key challenges for the pro life movement? Do you see the abortion rate staying largely the same as people just travel out of state for abortions, considering that a lot of states like Mississippi 
Mississippi already have very little abortion access. Planned Parenthood just canceled their abortion appointments at their clinics in Georgia and Alabama because they couldn't find somebody to actually do the abortion. So do you see this as sort of reinforcing a status quo or do you think we'll see a, a large shift on the ground that will indicate a lot more babies saved? I think that, you know, you're going to see a lot more babies saved. I mean, even though abortion rates in conservative states are relatively low, protections of preborn children, you know, do work. I mean, we've seen a pretty substantial reduction in the number of abortions performed in Texas since early September when the heartbeat law took effect. Now, laws aren't magical, and I'm well aware of the fact that, sure, there are Texas women that are traveling to other states, but not every woman does travel to another state. You know, there are some women that will take advantage of the pregnancy help resources that are made available. Many states are funding, you know, pregnancy help. Texas has the alternatives to abortion program that gets uh, millions of dollars from the state legislature every year. So, I mean, laws aren't magical, and sure, some women will circumvent the laws by going to states the laws are more permissive. Unborn children will be saved. I mean, you know, not every woman will go out of state. So one big challenge I think we do face, though, is chemical abortions, especially women obtaining chemical abortions by male. I think that's going to be a way our opponents try to circumvent these, these laws. And I think that there's things we can do kind of from a public policy standpoint, you know, and also just from an also educational standpoint as well. I think that, you know, having women do these chemical abortions remotely poses, you know, it's obviously we fail to unborn children, but also poses very serious health risks to the women as well. The woman is an ectopic pregnancy and she obtains a chemical abortion pill. That could be fatal if a woman is farther along in gestation than she realizes and she obtains a chemical abortion. That could pose some serious health risks. So I think that, you know, women traveling out of state, women obtaining chemical abortion pills by mail. You know, these are challenges that, you know, we will have to face. But again, I think the body of research is clear that, you know, pro-life laws do work. They do save some lives. And I do think that if Roe is overturned, you will see a pretty substantial reduction in the abortion rate in the U.S. Looking at this geographically a minute, The Guardian just published an article last week talking about abortion deserts, these, these huge areas of the U.S. where abortion will be largely unavailable after Roe. Which states do you see being best on this in their protection of preborn human rights? And and which states do you see as as turning into sort of all engines roaring abortion capital, similar to New York before Roe? You have some states where, you know, pro-life is already very organized and really ready to go. I mean, I think Texas has been a leader. Mississippi has been a leader. You know, I think that, you know, South Dakota, I'm excited about what Governor No might be able to do there if Roe v. Wade's overturned. So I think a lot of the states in the South, the Midwest, are uh, going to uh, be doing uh, you know, quite a lot of good things in terms of protecting preborn children and also helping mothers as well. Uh, I think that you're going to see, you know, the bluish states on the West Coast and on the East Coast becoming abortion magnets. You know, I think that, you know, California, you know, and other states like, you know, Maryland, they, they're trying to do things to make it easier for non-physicians to do abortions. You know, there's talk, I think, in the California state legislature, even appropriating money to help women from other states come to California to obtain abortions. I can't think of a, a worse use of taxpayer dollars. You know, pro-lifers are kind of talking about, you know, trying to get legislation acted that would, you know, prevent uh, state Medicaid programs from funding abortions for women from out of state, or at least seeing to it that the federal government, you know, isn't really paying for abortions for women traveling to states whose Medicaid program covers abortion. So I think that you're going to see, you know, East Coast states, I hate to use this term, become abortion magnets, and you're going to see places in the Deep South and the Midwest really protect preborn children. When we're looking at what the Democrats could do, because, of course, immediately you had people like uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who was, you know, sort of shrieking and flailing outside the court, you know, saying we're never going back. We're never going to let this happen. I know the Democrats have said they immediately need to attempt to nuke the filibuster so they can get through 
uh, a law to enshrine Rowan's statute afterwards. Let's say that 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 Alito's draft decision does reflect the position of the court in the next you know month, month and a half. Is there anything the Democrats could do prior to the midterms to basically do an end run around the uh, decision and subvert the results? First, they would have to eliminate the filibuster. And I'm not sure that, you know, the votes are there to do that. I mean, for instance, Democrats right now control 50 Senate seats. Senator Joe Manchin, you know, I think has been pretty clear that he does not want the filibuster abolished. I mean, Senator Manchin doesn't always vote with pro-lifers, but he votes with pro-lifers, you know, a fair amount of time. He's not someone who wants abortion on demand. You know, he's a pretty reliable vote for the Hyde Amendment and other kinds of incremental pro-life laws. So I think that, you know, that's going to be that's going to make abolishing the filibuster pretty, pretty problematic. So uh, I just don't think the votes are really there to abolish the filibuster. I do think even some Democrats have some misgivings about it. I mean, you know, keep in mind, if you do abolish the filibuster, Democrats could use that to advance liberal policies today. But you know, in years future, Republicans will get set majorities and use that to advance conservative policies, which uh, Democrats would oppose. So I think there's a lot of talk about abolishing the filibuster, but I don't think it actually will happen. Now, when we're looking at Alito's uh, decision, which basically, as you described earlier, finds that there is no right to abortion in the Constitution, and as such, Roe and Casey were both wrongly decided. Is there any disappointment for pro-lifers in the way the decision's worded? Because I know what what pro-lifers would want first and foremost, although I think very few thought that was a possibility, is that that the justices would find that the preborn human being in the womb is a person under the 14th Amendment, and as such, that, that no, uh, no state actually has the right to decide that that child can be killed in the womb. Is this pretty much to be expected, or, or, or is there any disappointment for pro-lifers in, in Alito's draft? You know, I think there are is kind of pro-life legal theories that would think the 14th Amendment could really be used to legally protect preborn children. But I don't think that most people in the pro-life movement expect the Supreme Court to really take that route. You know, I think that, you know, the plausible options I think we saw were simply put that, you know, Roe v. Wade is upheld, that the Mississippi law is upheld under kind of weak, narrow, state-specific grounds. Another option is that the Mississippi law is kind of upheld, but on stronger, broader grounds would allow other states to do something similar, or that Roe v. Wade's overturned. And given the fact that, you know, Alito is making a very strong case for the overturning of Roe and the fact that his draft opinion was apparently signed on by four other judges, I think pro-lifers are very, very happy with this outcome. I don't know of a lot of, you know, pro-life professionals who really thought the Supreme Court was going to use the 14th Amendment to really protect all, all pre-born children. Now, one question, and, and and I get it if you don't want to speculate on this, but I will admit it's one that's always confused me, is, is the case of, of John Roberts, because... John Roberts, when when he was nominated to the Supreme Court, was was welcomed by pro-lifers because, you know, as Solicitor General in, in the first Bush administration, he had defended the right of Operation Rescue to pro- uh, protest in front of abortion clinics under the First Amendment. He, he wrote in a briefing for that administration that they advised the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Of course, that briefing could have reflected the view of the administration and not his own view. But add to that the fact that his wife has been a long-standing pro bono attorney for Feminists for Life and once served as as vice executive director for Feminists for Life for four years, and his rulings on several abortion cases that would indicate pro-life views. Why is he the swing vote? I understand the politics of the court. I understand that he wants to uphold the legitimacy of the institution as he sees it. But at the same time, for anybody who would genuinely hold pro-life views, to neglect the chance to be, you know, on the right side of history, to use a term I usually hate, and and more than that, when to recognize that Roe is gonna go, and to not stand with the other five justices, 
it just does boggle my mind. And I don't hold to a lot of the theories of other people that he's some sort of horrific sellout, you know, this this really evil person. Is he blinded by politics or what's what's your theory on this? Roberts is someone who cares about the legitimacy of the court. You know, I think he would prefer to move incrementally. I think likely he's okay with the Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban, but he's a little bit leery about the reversal of Roe v. Wade. I don't think that's a good way to make decisions. I think that he doesn't really like to pick up the paper in the morning after the Supreme Court makes a decision on a big issue and see all the Democrat-appointed judges vote one way and all Republican-appointed judges vote the other way. I think that that just rubs him the wrong way. But I don't think that's, you know, a really good way to think about this. I think that, you know, Supreme Court judges need to interpret the Constitution in a, a faithful way, in a straightforward way, and kind of let the chips fall where they may. And if errors are made in the past, you know, errors need to be corrected. And, you know, I think a friend of mine had an analogy, maybe I'm getting slightly off, but that, you know, if the Supreme Court's about to make a big decision, you want to be on the right side of it. I mean, uh, you want to be, you know, on the right side of Brown versus Board of Education. You know, you don't want to be in favor of some, you know, mealy mouth compromise. You know, if the Supreme Court's going to make a really good decision, a really important decision, you know, you want to be out front. You know, you want to be you know, clearly on the side of the unborn in this case, you know, not trying to go through some halfway measures. So, yeah, I find, you know, Roberts and the way he's handled many cases to be a bit, bit puzzling, but he's no longer, you know, pivotal vote. You know, there are five other Republican nominees who I think are certainly uh, abortion skeptical. And there's a good chance that, again, we have the five votes we need to overturn Roe v. Wade. Is there a scenario uh, in which this isn't true, that a couple of justices flip? And what's the worst case scenario in terms of if the draft opinion isn't legitimate or let's say uh, it reflected their views back in February, does not does not reflect their views now? What would be the most likely alternative decision if this this is just sort of a moment in time a couple of months ago and and isn't going to be what the court court decides at the end? Yeah, the Mississippi law is upheld and that Mississippi law goes into effect and pre-born children after 15 weeks gestation are protected. It would require some, you know, redoing of the Casey standard. I don't know exactly what that would look like, but I think that you at least have a situation where states could do things to, you know, protect unborn children after 15 weeks gestation. That would be, you know, an incremental gain. You know, it wouldn't be the, you know, is the big victory that we hope for, but it would be a gain incrementally. And I think it's worth remembering that we still have the same Supreme Court, uh, the composition of the Supreme Court be unchanged, and that we can keep, you know, trying to send different kinds of pro-life laws up there until we get, you know, a reversal of Roe. So, you know, I think long-term things look good. You know, I certainly hope that Roe is overturned within the next uh, several weeks. If it's somehow it's just a situation where we only get the 15-week ban upheld, you know, we're going to be disappointed because we really thought the Supreme Court was you know, on the verge of doing more, but we can still use that. You know, states can mimic the Mississippi law. You know, it will do some good. It's something we can build on. And I think we just keep passing laws and keep sending cases up to the Supreme Court until we get a case where uh, the Supreme Court does, in fact, feel comfortable overturning Roe v. Wade. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, when I interviewed Clark Forsyth for the American Conservative, just before the oral arguments were made before the Supreme Court on Dobbs in in October, you know, the the consensus he said of much of the pro-life legal establishment was that that's what they were going to get 
which was a rewriting of the Casey standard and upholding the 15 week ban. And so they were kind of preparing themselves for a limited win. But I think it's fair to say now with, with the leak of the draft decision, that if that draft decision doesn't represent the final vote, that instead the pro-life movement won't even see a limited victory because now everybody's expectations have been built to expect Roe to finally fall. Most pro-lifers, I think, are of the opinion that if we get, we should celebrate whatever incremental win we get. It's going to be harder to celebrate, you know, an incremental win when we're expecting a, a bigger win. You know, I don't really know how exactly from a PR perspective we square that circle. But one thing I've always said is that, you know, no matter what the Supreme Court does, it's just the beginning. You know, it's not the end. You know, I've coordinated sidewalk counseling outside of the D.C. Planned Parenthood. I've told my fellow sidewalk counselors I know exactly where I'll be that Saturday after the final decision is handed down. That Saturday, I'll be in front of the Supreme Court sidewalk counseling. If we get a good outcome, if we get a bad outcome, abortions will still be legal in the District of Columbia, and we need to be there, you know, offering life-affirming alternatives to, to women in, in need. So I just think that, you know, no matter what happens, we need to maintain our efforts, whether they be legislative, whether they be educational, whether they be service. And one thing I always, you know, want to offer encouragement to your listeners is that, you know, we made a lot of progress, you know. We've gotten the abortion rate down by more than 53% since 1980. If the abortion rate today was what it was back in 1980, there'd be a million more abortions happening every year. And an important reason why abortion numbers are falling is because a higher percentage of unintended pregnancies are being carried to term. So some of the unintended pregnancies aren't happening. It's when they do happen, women choose life. And if women are choosing life, it all flows back to the activities of pro-lifers. We're either changing hearts and minds through our educational programs, taking better care of women through pregnancy help centers or passing protective pro-life laws. So no matter what happens, you know, we just need to keep building a culture of life. You know, we have made some real progress getting abortion numbers down. You know, what happens to the Supreme Court's important. What happens in front of abortion clinics is important too. So no matter what happens, we just need to keep the faith and keep up our efforts. Dr. New, thank you again so much for taking the time. We always appreciate your insights and your wisdom. No, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Dr. Michael New on a post-Row America. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you want to check out past shows or, again, subscribe so that you can get future shows sent to you, head over down to LifeSiteNews.com, click on the podcast tab. You can find the show there, and you can subscribe to us on any of the podcast platforms where you get your content. Again, thanks so much, and hope you'll join us again next week.